Julian of Norwich, in the 16th and final of her showings, a text which, by virtue of being put together in the year 1395, is the first book in the English language by a woman, writes, The place which God takes in our soul, he will never vacate. For in us is his home of homes, and it is the greatest delight for him to dwell there. The soul who contemplates this is made like the one who is contemplated. Today our topic is space, space as place, and the place in our hearts and the place in our lives for God, and the pride of place we give to so many things that keep God in his place, which is at a safe distance from us, or so we like to think, and thank God he does not think so. Julian puts that notion to flight as we have heard. The place which God takes in our soul, he will never vacate. God is to be found within us then. And not just now and again, he will never vacate it. In other words, he has made of his place in our hearts an abode, a dwelling place. He has made himself at home in us at our deepest core, and it is the greatest delight for him to dwell there. There is nothing which gives God greater pleasure than to make of our hearts a home worthy of himself, as the old Eucharistic prayer goes. I wish I could believe this as easily as Dame Julian. Truth to tell, I would like to. Truth to tell, I am trying to, trying to believe it. But everything in my flesh, and alas, everything in my tradition, leads me not to believe it. So let's try again. And I would do well to take the time and try again and make the effort. For, as, Saint, as Dame Julian says, the soul who contemplates this, that God is omnipresent within us, is made like the one, like God, who is contemplated. The way to become a little more godlike is to consider then not just the God out there, and not just the God, small g, in here, who is most likely my own ego enthroned, but the God who made me and you and this whole creation, who is also the God within all of us, at the heart of our being and well pleased to be there, finding his abode. Let your hearts be not be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. Many abodes, dwelling places, the word is mone from meno, which means to remain, to stay. You remember in the King James, the translation went, in my father's house there are many mansions. Whatever we now imagine the word mansion to mean, and its meaning has been somewhat demeaned by domestication as it is dragged into the suburbs, it meant a large building divided into apartments. The notion of a place apart, an apartment, a room of one's own, is a relative novelty in the history of housing. We'll take a little useful discourse down the road that leads through the history of housing. A roof over one's head was the best that could be done for most of human history. 
And the effort involved in procuring building materials and getting them in place and fashioning them into a protective canopy, an enclosure to keep us warm when it was cool and dry when it was wet, primarily us meaning us, humans, our animals, and the food that fed both this, us and them, such effort as that took did not allow any appropriation of subdivided cells within, except for the very well-off. A room of one's own, called a chamber, was reserved for those at the top of the social structure. At whatever scale, farmhouse, townhouse, or palace, it was the ultimate status symbol, one that those who camped out every night in the great hall did not enjoy. And it was not just a place reserved for its occupant's use, but its primary use was for sleeping or whatever uses or abuses the privacy permitted to privilege made possible. Chamber became a verb, chambering. Nonetheless, the chamber reserved for the very few, the chamber came more and more into general use as spacious palaces supplanted cramped castles in the 16th century's new political landscape, and as steam power permitted timber to be fashioned into thin, elegant members, two by fours, in the 19th century's new industrial landscape. And steam engines transported these timbers to anyone handy enough with a hammer and a saw to fabricate the simple framework. And the skill required for that was not very extensive because the framework was the same for floors, roofs, or walls, which supplanted the hierarchy of intricately notched timbers that made professional carpenters worthy of their name in days of old. It was simple to build intensively then and extensively. So by the 18th century, in farmhouses and townhouses, as well as manor houses, humans, animals, and the food for both could each have not just rooms of their own, but separate buildings if they wanted. So let's go back to the ancient Near East, when a place of one's own was really at a premium. In Jerusalem, as you will recall, there is one room in town which is bigger and better than anyone else's, whether Herod's or Pontius Pilate's or that of the high priest. And that was the room reserved for God, now vacant, the Holy of Holies in the heart of the temple, a place no one dare set foot save the high priest himself once a year on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus promises that the temple is going to be coming down, not just the veil that protects the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps like the curtain we used to wrap around our beds, but the whole thing is to be demolished stone by stone. The temple he is building is one not made, by human hands, but made of human beings and set in the human heart, the holy of holies of the new creation. So when Jesus promises not just that we will abide, remain, stay, rest with the Father, not in one celestial longhouse, but each have our own space within, he is making some strong statements not so much about eschatological architectonics, but the way in which he regards each and every one of us here and now. He sees us as royalty, even more as divinity. 
We are all going to have our own holy of holies, if you like, as we wait in this heavenly hotel for the new creation to be brought to completion and for us all to come back to earth. God became man, human, as Irenaeus said, so that men, humans, could become gods. You are all little Christs, as Luther said, quite provocatively, but that's where this is going. And that same God has placed himself within each and every one of us, for starters. Yet at the same time, he is placing on our hearts a desire for him out there, promising that just as he has a place within us, so we have a place with him, and dare I say it, within him. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And where is Jesus? Where is that place? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, as we make our journey from the milk of works to the meat of the one who made them, we complete the intricate structure of these middle terms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, dwelling, abiding in the Father. This outside-inside is paradoxical. As the collect of today says, grant that as by your grace going before us, you put into our minds and our heart, good desires. We start all our prayers by asking God to invade our hearts, even without our knowing it, as he did when he turned those hearts toward him, entirely of his doing. And let us discover that in our own good time. And we are invited to contemplate that the possibility that the God who placed the desire for himself within our hearts without our help is, in some very real sense, there already after having done it. And a lot of life, as I've said, is simply realizing that. So, realizing we are what we were all along, and that is what we are looking for all along. And if we're looking for God at all, it is because we are already in touch with God. And that God has already sought us and found us when he put that desire for him within us. Now we have only to allow God's life and love to embrace us and flow through our lives. Simple, right? <laughs> Not at all. As Julian would say, it is God who is even doing the longing in us and through us, the longing for himself. We are living out God's desires as he lives those desires through us. There's less and less in this that is ours and more and more in this that is God's. And that's what the path for milk to meat is all about finding out. As by your grace going before us, provenient grace, as you put into our minds, into our beings, good desires, so, this is where we get into the act, by your continual help, 
we may bring them to good effect. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. I love this line. Work it out, but remember who is doing the work. God. It's all about God. We will and work then, not to earn the world's reward or to evade the world's punishments, and certainly not to bring that very worldly way of thinking right into the church, as we are wont to do, and as the church is oh so ready to receive that worldly system of rewards and punishments and meet it out to those who are gathered. No, we look to the divine mystery from within. As Meister Eckhart says, the eye through which we see God is the same eye through which God sees us. Our eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. It's not that we are driven by some moralistic agenda that brings God's good desires to good effect but that we are drawn from within into that sharing in the divine nature, which is called the indwelling Holy Spirit, uncreated grace, perfect gift. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Of all the works of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, this is my favorite Holy Spirit text. For it speaks more powerfully than any promise of health or wealth to the reality of the transformation which God guarantees and brings it to fruition in those he has called faith, hope, and love as one, testifying to the presence of the one within and without even as Stephen's last words are a prayer for forgiveness, and any discipleship program does not make, which does not make forgiveness the alpha and omega of what it's about is no program of discipleship. And even as Stephen's last words are a prayer for forgiveness, calling him home, summoning him to that place of his own, which was his from before the world was made, and will be his forever, that place in the heart of God. Amen.